Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, as the case may be, wherever you are. I am glad to be with you again. I'd also like to say Merry Christmas. I know this year has been a great big steaming pile of dog dude for most of us, but look, Christmas is Christmas, right? And Christmas is really all about healing. It's about God healing a broken world and all of us in the process. So Christmas definitely has the power to overcome 2020. You with me? So I will say it again. Merry Christmas. All right. So um, in preacher school, they tell you to come up with a witty lead-in, like a joke or an anecdote. Something to get the crowd settled before you throw your three or five points at them, right? What you never want to do is start right off with a, a big, deep statement. So, in this episode, I want to talk about the Antichrist. I know, right? So, we're about to dive into chapter 13, where the two beasts appear. And this has historically been interpreted as the chapter of Antichrist, that terrifying figure of the being who rules the tribulation, right? However, there's a hitch in that classic interpretation. You see, the word Antichrist does not appear in chapter 13. In fact, the word Antichrist does not appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, I know. Not not one single time. In the entire New Testament, this word is only used five times in four verses and only by John. It's used four times in 1 John and once in 2 John. In 1 John 2.18, John warns us that many antichrists are coming. And in verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4, John goes on to confirm that whoever opposes the idea that Jesus has come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. The idea is confirmed in 2 John 7, as John warns against the deceivers who deny the gospel. And don't miss the obvious fact that the only New Testament author to use the word is John, the man who wrote Revelation, and he does not use the word in Revelation. What we do see is that John defines Antichrist as anyone, and there will be many who denies the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the only begotten son of God come in the flesh. And we know that John's main purpose was to refute the false pre-Gnostic teaching that Jesus was actually a spirit being who appeared human, but did not actually come in the flesh since flesh was evil. But the word antichrist never appears in Revelation. Yet so many people insist on interpreting the first beast in Revelation 13 as an actual person who is the antichrist. And over the years, people have claimed that various historical figures were that guy. But in order to find the Antichrist in Revelation 13, you have to make three interpretive mistakes. First, you have to ignore the fact that the word doesn't appear in Revelation at all. Second, you have to bring the book of Daniel to bear on Revelation, which I think is a mistake. And third, you have to completely ignore Revelation 17, which helps us interpret the imagery in chapter 13. So let's not make those mistakes. Instead... Let's take a look at chapter 13 in the light of chapter 17 and see what the text actually says about these two beasts. But first, let's start off with a bit about Daniel, right? As I said, some interpreters like to bring Daniel into the conversation about chapter 13, and some of the imagery does recall passages from Daniel. The problem is, it's not really appropriate to use Daniel here. And the first reason I say that is that in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is not part of the books of prophecy. Remember that the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is referred to as the Tanakh. That word is made from the three consonants that are the first letters in three Hebrew words that describe the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. The T in Torah, or law. The N in the Hebrew word for prophets. 
and the K for the Hebrew word for writings. It's important to remember that Daniel is not included in or considered part of the prophets. It's not a book of prophecy. It's actually included in the writings or wisdom literature, along with books like Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. The second reason I wouldn't use Daniel to interpret Revelation 13 is that the content of Daniel isn't really relevant. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let me give you just a rough and broad outline of the book of Daniel. There are 12 chapters in the book. Chapters 1 through 6 include an introduction and then describe the exploits of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their exile experience, right? So, Chapter 2 is the statue dream we're all familiar with. Chapter 3 is the fiery furnace episode. Chapter 4 is when Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy and has his crazy dream. Chapter 5 is the Mene Mene Tekel Parsin episode. And chapter 6 is the lion's den. Now this section forms a story about the faithful men in the court of Babylon during the exile. Okay. Then chapter 7 through 12, that section includes predictions about future events and focuses primarily on the period of time between the exile and the birth of Jesus. Chapter 7 is Daniel's vision of the four beasts from the sea, four coming kingdoms, and his vision of the Son of Man. Chapter 8 is the vision of the ram and the goat, the Medo-Persian Empire being overcome by Greece and Alexander, and the four-way split that came from his untimely death. It also introduces the little horn, which is the subject of the vision in chapter 9, which I think pertains directly to Antiochus Epiphanes, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the desolation of the temple in the 2nd century BC, which led to the Maccabean Rebellion. Chapter 10 again predicts the fall of Persia to Greece. Chapter 11 again predicts the division of that great Greek empire. And chapter 12 predicts the end of this time in history and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the redemption of God's people at the very end. As you can see, none of this really has to do with Revelation 13, or for the most part with Revelation in general. But I do believe that Daniel lent some imagery of the four beasts who are combined into one beast in chapter 13. Daniel 7 lists three beasts, like a lion, a bear, and a leopard. He also employs horn imagery to represent kings and kingdoms that will come up and be torn down. But other than that, so we're not going to bring the book of Daniel into this chapter. But I think we can use Revelation 17 because it might help us interpret what's going on in chapter 13. So let's start by taking a look at what happens in chapter 13 with the infamous two beasts. Now in verses 1 through 8, we see the first beast. It comes from the sea and has ten horns and seven heads, and on the ten horns are ten crowns, and on the seven heads are blasphemous names. This beast is like a leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. One of the heads received a death blow, but the beast recovered. It doesn't say that the head recovered, although this is a common interpretation. It's also interesting that John does not witness the injury. It's merely part of his description of the beast. The beast gets its authority directly from the dragon, which we can rightly assume is the dragon from chapter 12, and it exercises that authority for 42 months. It utters blasphemies against God and makes war against the saints and all the inhabitants of the earth, which is code for unbelievers, and they all worship the beast. Now, let's see what chapter 17 has to say about this beast. According to Revelation 17, the great whore in that chapter is actually riding the first beast, the beast with seven heads and ten horns. And the angel tells John in verse 9 that the seven heads are seven hills. It's not coincidental that Rome was known as the city of the seven hills. Initially, there were seven small and separate camps which united to form a larger metropolis, Rome. The great whore is said to be the city who sits on the seven hills and rules over the kingdom of the earth. Kind of explains things for us. 
And verse 9 further tells us that the seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one who is, and one who is yet to come. And many speculate on which seven kings they are. Some give the list as Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, who have all been, Nero, who is at the time, and Galba, who is to come. But frankly, I don't think identifying the specific kings is important. The fact is, they're seven kings, not simply one guy. And then verse 12 tells us that the ten horns are ten kings who have yet to receive a kingdom. Obviously, the ten kings rest on or stem from the seven kings. On the ten horns are ten diadems, which are crowns, further asserting the imagery of the kings to come. And on the seven heads were blasphemous names, which is not surprising since the rulers of Rome continuously claimed to actually be sons of gods, and in fact, gods themselves. So it's clear that the first beast is the empire of Rome, controlled by the great city herself, which raised itself to the level of deity and forced all to worship it or die, and who literally made war against the saints. I also believe that this empire is used by John as a model for any empire that self-deifies, and that uses something like religious sanction to carry out its atrocities against the world, and specifically against the church. Now, am I saying that this applies to empires like Germany, Russia, the Vatican, America, whatever? Well, let me answer that question later. For now, it's important that we understand that what is pictured here is a secular authority, with Rome as a model, that sets itself up in opposition to God and gains its authority from Satan, and is used by Satan to do what he determined to do in chapter 12, which is persecute the church. Now, I haven't really said much about the second beast. There isn't a lot of descriptive imagery about it, but it's clear that it's the thing which causes people to worship the first beast, almost as if it were a prophet, right? The second beast is prophet to the first beast. To a first century crowd, that imagery would be obvious. The imperial cult of Rome had a stranglehold on the cities of Asia Minor, forcing the worship of emperors past and present and the worship of Rome herself. Okay? Whew, yeah, I know, that's a lot. So let's take a break for a minute and talk about something lighter. Does anyone ever worry about what the aliens will think of us? You know, I think about that sometimes. It's a consequence of an overactive imagination, I guess. But I wonder sometimes what the aliens will think of us if, if they investigate our society. You know, or what if a thousand years from now, people excavate the remains of our ancient civilization? What would they say about us? What would they think about us? Did anybody see the movie Galaxy Quest? Classic, great movie. But the premise of the movie is that a bunch of actors from a show spoofing Star Trek are sought out by an actual alien civilization who believes they are real star troopers because they have seen the historical documents that were actually episodes of their TV show. By taking these shows literally and by missing the context they were created in, they believed the captain was a real captain and the crew was a real crew and that they were capable of getting them out of any sticky situation, right? And the result is hilarious. But, but see, this is my concern. What if future generations uncover a collection of Danielle Steele novels and assume they're historical documents, right? What would they think of us? I mean, if they read fiction novels as historical documents, they might totally misunderstand who we were. And this is why I keep hammering the idea of the context of the biblical documents. How can we understand what they say to us without at least considering what they meant when they were written? Without getting back to the literary and historical context, we're likely to make some wild interpretations of scripture. We need to think about context when we read any passage. 
we need to read chapter 13 here as part of the longer section spanning chapters 10 to 16. We need to read it as part of Revelation as a whole. We need to read it as part of the New Testament and as part of the Bible. And we need to read it as a text written at a particular time in history by a particular person with a particular audience in mind. If we are willing to do this work, then we'll have a much more solid interpretive footing when we seek to understand what the Bible is telling us. And to do that now, my apologies in advance, we have to talk seriously about Behemoth and Leviathan. So, Behemoth and Leviathan are the two primordial beasts of creation that appear in a lot of ancient Near Eastern texts and show up in a lot of ancient Hebrew literature. They figure prominently into the book of Job, which is one of my faves. In the last chapters of Job, Yahweh speaks to Job from the whirlwind and reminds him just how little he really knows about the created world, right? In chapter 40, God talks about behemoth and about the inability of humans to fight with this fierce beast of the land. Then in chapter 41, God turns his attention to Leviathan and how feeble a human is against this beast of the sea. I was preparing a sermon once on these chapters, and someone remarked that they had always been taught that those chapters were about the crocodile and the hippopotamus. Stop laughing. It's not an uncommon interpretation of these creatures, even though it's, it's pretty silly. The fact is human beings tangle with both creatures regularly, right? And I've always wondered what a first century Jewish Christian would say if he found out this is what we think when we hear about behemoth and Leviathan. Look, the fact is it's easy to recognize these two beasts in Revelation 13. The first beast comes from the sea, Leviathan, and the second beast comes from the earth, Behemoth. These two creatures were tattooed on the consciousness of the ancient world, not just for Jews, but for all the A&E cultures we know about. Now, most of what we know about them in ancient Hebrew culture comes from texts that we consider apocryphal texts, right? These are texts that aren't officially part of the Hebrew canon. But they do stem from an ancient Hebrew tradition that's based on Genesis 1.21, which speaks about the fifth day of creation and says, So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. That's Genesis 1.21. Okay. So one of the strongest examples of this ancient tradition is found in the apocryphal book of First Enoch. And I want to read you just a small excerpt of that. It says, On that day, referring to the day of judgment, two monsters will be produced, a female monster named Leviathan to dwell in the depths of the ocean over the fountains of the waters. But the male is called Behemoth, who occupies with his breast a waste wilderness named Dendane, on the east of the garden, where the elect and the righteous dwell. And I besought that other angel that he should show me the might of these monsters and how they were produced on that day the one being placed in the depth of the sea and the other on the mainland of the wilderness. And he spake to me, Thou, son of man, dost seek here to know what is hidden? See, we see the tradition that these beasts were created, that they have something to do with judgment day and that they are way beyond our understanding, which is consistent with what we see in Job. We also have a passage from Fort Ezra, also an apocryphal text. In this one we read, On the fifth day, referring again to Genesis 1.21, Thou didst command the seventh part where the water had been gathered together to bring forth living creatures, birds, and fishes. And so it was done. The dumb and lifeless water produced living creatures as it was commanded, that therefore the nations might declare thy wondrous works. Then thou didst keep in existence two living creatures, the name of one thou didst call Behemoth, and the name of the other Leviathan. And thou didst separate one from the other, for the seventh part where the water had been gathered together could not hold them both. 
and thou didst give behemoth one of the parts which had been dried up on the third day to live in it, where there are a thousand mountains. But to Leviathan thou didst give the seventh part, the watery part. And thou hast kept them to be eaten by whom thou wilt, and when thou wilt. You see, this text expands on Genesis 1.21 to specifically include behemoth and Leviathan. It also introduces the idea of these creatures being eaten at some future time, which I know is weird. And then there's the Apocalypse of Baruch, again, another apocryphal work. It's an eschatological document, which means it has to do with end times. And here's a little excerpt. And it shall come to pass when all is accomplished that was to come to pass in those parts, that the Messiah shall then begin to be revealed, and behemoth shall be revealed from his place, and Leviathan shall ascend from the sea, and those two great monsters which I created on the fifth day of creation shall have kept until that time. And then they shall be for food for all that are left. Okay, so why am I reading these documents to you? Because I want you to get a feel for the way ancient people, especially ancient Jews and Jewish Christians in the early church, thought about these two beasts. When ancient Hebrews thought about Behemoth and Leviathan, they thought of creatures so evil and powerful that no human could withstand or control them, but over whom God had complete control. They thought of the primordial created beasts that were indelibly linked to the end of time when Messiah would come and the faithful would dine on their flesh. Even Isaiah 27.1 speaks of an end time when God will punish Leviathan. So this is the context for the imagery used in Revelation 13. When we read John's vision of the two beasts that come as agents of the devil, the fallen one who seeks to persecute the church, we get an eerie nod back to the primordial beasts of creation that ancients feared, but that God has always controlled. John knew these myths. John's first audience knew them. So we can't read Revelation without at least acknowledging that nod and the fear and awe that those images might have brought with them. Okay? All right. So what? Earlier, I brought up a question about whether or not chapter 13 applies to other empires like Germany, Russia, the Vatican, or even America. All theories you've probably heard on the internet. Well, we all love to fill in the blanks with people we don't like or think are evil. But can we really say that John was talking about America? Is America the first beast? I, I tell you, I think that's the wrong question. You know, the answer is probably no, but it's also just the wrong question. The right question is, what's the point of chapter 13? I mean, we have to put all these facts and all this ancient and whatnot together and hear what John's vision is meant to tell us. What does this vision of the weapons of Satan, given in the imagery of the two beasts, tell us? Well, I think chapter 13 gives us three important things to think about. The first thing is helplessness. Now, some bad historians try to tell the story of the early church as if there was a war between the secular government of Rome and the newly forming church. Does everybody understand how ludicrous that idea is? The church of the first three centuries was a series of independent congregations who knew of each other and maybe even communicated from time to time, but had no global structure and no ecclesiastical army. And Rome? Well, Rome was the most powerful empire in the history of the world. You know, for 800 years, no foreign army entered Rome. Now, what can the early church, the people, you know, who were hiding in catacombs, do against such power? Nothing. What will Christians in any country do when their government is so overrun by those who hate Jesus that their freedom to meet is hampered and even prevented? What can they possibly do against a force as strong as a government? Nothing. Now, 
Imagine how much less we can do against the spiritual forces of evil that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6. We are helpless on our own. The appearance of Behemoth and Leviathan in chapter 13 tell us something important, something most of us already know. We cannot fight back against this kind of power. Our major concern over the first beast isn't properly identifying it. It's an understanding that the power Satan will give it will be too much for us to fight against. We, the church, cannot stand up against the power of Behemoth and Leviathan. We can't even begin to understand them. The second thing I think we need to think about is control. Job teaches us a lot of things, but one important thing is that no matter how little sense it all makes and how little we understand it all, God is in control. He is in control of everything. You see, Behemoth and Leviathan look to us like insurmountable obstacles, primordial monsters that we cannot hope to stand against. But they are creations of God. He made them, he controls them, and he has complete authority over them. And that idea is confirmed in Job. Now, this is the difficult part of faith. When we stand in the fire and the stench of the dragon, knowing that there's nothing we can do to withstand it, God asks us to trust in him. Even though we can't see him and sometimes we don't understand what exactly he's doing or is going to do or how's he going to do it, Revelation tells us that Satan will throw these two beasts at us, beasts against whom we cannot hope to stand, but beasts over whom God has complete and total control. And we are called to have faith in the face of the beasts because God has and will overcome them. Amen. And the third important thing here is endurance. You know, if you haven't gotten the memo yet, endurance is one of the primary themes of Revelation and of the New Testament. It seems obvious from the text that while predicting future events was not a priority to John, writing a document that would encourage the church as they lived in this world and awaited Christ's return was at the forefront of his mind. Think about chapters 2 and 3 and the messages to the churches. Think about the number of times the church was told to endure. I'll give you a hint. It's seven times. It's four in chapter two and three in chapter three. We are continually told that the reward will go to everyone who conquers, who endures in faith until the end. Chapter 13, verse 10 tells us the same thing. Here is a call for the endurance of faith and of the saints. I think the basis of this kind of endurance is dependence. Now, look, I know the foundation of our country here is independence. While many of our forefathers had faith in God, and that faith is evident in the documents and the ideology of the time, but the real foundation of America was independence, right? And while being independent from oppressive regimes is a good thing in the secular world, independence can be very destructive to our faith. The way of Christ is the way of interpenetration, Jesus in us and us in him. And this calls for complete and utter voluntary dependence on our creator, God, who became human in order to restore our relationship with him. It was in seeking our independence from God that our relationship with him was broken in the first place. Now he strives to repair it. He died to repair it. But that relationship calls us to take on his yoke, not for him to take on ours. This is a call to dependence in relationship, so much so that our lives are sacrificed in order that he might give us his life instead, a life that is lived eternally with him. So, look, there's no need to see any specific country or empire in the description of the beast. However, there's a, there's a real need here to expect, anticipate, and endure persecution from all areas of life. Satan will call the primordial beasts of creation to help him wage war against God's people, and so we must be prepared. 
But there is no need to fear. We talked about this last time. We must endure in faith. We must relinquish our independence and rest entirely on Jesus, who may not always make sense, but who always loves us, and on whom we can rely to always work out his plan for our redemption. Because God has total control over these creatures and has already won the war for us. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for you right now. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep your eyes on the road, keep your eyes on what you're doing, and just let your hearts pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this great message. In the face of fear, in the face of overcoming these immovable obstacles, we feel helpless. And you remind us, Lord, that you are totally in control. That in our helplessness, you are strong. And that you have already won. You control all the things that this evil world might try to throw at us. However bad it seems, pandemics, social unrest, whatever chaos we see out there, whatever whatever chaos we're being warned against, you're in control. And all we need to do is trust in you and endure in our faith. Lord, we obviously can't do those things without you. So we pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our faith, and guide us through difficult times. Lord, we thank you so much for Christmas and what you did in Christmas. And we really, 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 really ask, please, that 21 is much better than 20. Lord, we will follow you no matter what. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That's it for this time. I'll see you all in the next episode. Till then, peace.